0: I think it's healthy for us to admit that there are things in our lives that just don't seem to make a lot of sense. Uh, it's hard for us to understand things like the Toronto van attack or the Danforth shootings. Uh, some of you ha- followed this week uh, the, uh, the shooting of Johnny Gale, uh, a young man who had attended our church, who was a part of our youth group for a time, uh, and we see... A tragedy like that and we, we struggle to make sense of it. Uh, there may be circumstances in your own life where you are entering into the Christmas season and there are things that you just don't understand. At some point, many people will ask the question, how could a good God allow this? We face circumstances that have us either question whether God is as powerful as we thought he was or whether he cares as much as we hope that he does. We ask those questions and I think it's important for us to recognize that those questions are real. Uh, Tim Keller, in talking about those kinds of uh, struggles that we have, the doubts that will come into our minds. He said, A faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. What he's saying is that we shouldn't just dismiss some of the hard questions. We shouldn't ignore them, stuff them down, or pretend that they're not there. But Paul Copin gives us a warning on the other side, a warning against giving too much weight to our doubts. Uh, He says this, Why do we give more weight to our doubts than to our beliefs and even our convictions? Why don't we doubt our doubts? We assume that doubting is smarter than belief. When we have times of deep doubt, are we paying proper attention to the previous clear evidences and indications of God's presence and working? What he's saying is that at some point, people will inevitably ask questions about faith. And he says, that's that's fine and, and even appropriate at times. But he says, the same questions and the tough questions ought also to be asked of doubt that we should bring the, the same hard questions to uh, the, the doubts and struggles that we have. And when we do that, we will recognize that often in giving weight to those doubts, we have failed to look back and recognize those clear evidences of God's powerful working in our lives. He tells us to doubt our doubts. This morning's passage gives us some help in doing that it takes some of the questions that we have and it responds to them not so much with answers but with some of God's questions. Some of the questions that God would bring to us to help us to to doubt our doubts when circumstances come into our lives that we find difficult to make sense of. They point us to the hope uh, that there is uh, in a God who is... Bigger and more uh, infinite than often we give him credit for. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to turn there with me. I'm going to be reading from Isaiah chapter 40. Well, we've been in uh, this 40th chapter of Isaiah through the month of December because it's a passage that was pointing forward to the coming of uh, a Messiah. Uh, it was Pointing forward to the visitation of God into this world and on his people. And it is a a chapter that has given great hope uh, to people ever since. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 12 to 26. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, marked off the heavens with a span? Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for its silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. When he blows on them, and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Amen. This is the word of God. Now, if you count, there, you'll find there are 10 questions in this passage. We are going to uh, bring them together into three big questions. And they're questions that God, I believe, has given us to help us doubt our doubts, to find hope when... Life just doesn't seem to make sense. The first question is this. What if God is infinitely wiser than you can imagine? Often I think we we imagine God to be a slightly more experienced version of ourselves. We picture him as maybe a little smarter, a little more mature, a little more experienced. But what if he's not that? What if he is infinitely more wise than we could imagine? uh, this gets brought out right away in verse 12 where it pictures God performing some measurements. Uh, It almost looks like he's in a uh, a science lab performing some experiments. He takes the waters of the ocean and measures them in his palm. He measures the universe, the, the, the stars in the sky. He measures them by his stretched out hand. He weighs mountains and hills in a scale. But it also asks, who does those things? Who who is capable of something like that? Who who does experiments and measurements on a scale like this? When these words were first recorded over 2,700 years ago, science wasn't quite as advanced. Maybe technology hadn't progressed as much, but compared to the scale that God operates on, have we really made that much progress? Where we lived in Japan was a science city, and so my neighbors and friends were rocket scientists and nuclear physicists, and they were doing what was believed to be cutting-edge research, and it was, and we're grateful for the research that, that people like them do. But compared to the research that God does, compared to the great works of God, we have to look at the little accomplishments of humanity and say they're like children playing in the sandbox. Just small little steps. Small steps that we make here on a, in this earth to try and make a better world But the recognition of and the the declaration of the Scriptures is that there is a God who is infinitely above that. And anything that we accomplish, we do so first by learning, right? We go to school. We get our textbooks. We rely on teachers, then on professors and mentors. But verse 14 says, Whom did he consult? Whom did God consult? Who made him understand? The message is that God doesn't need a second opinion. He didn't refer to a textbook. He didn't need a teacher or a tutor. He didn't need our second opinion. The idea that God is somehow primitive and needs to keep up with the times, the idea that God is somehow backward and needs to learn from us and, and catch up with our understanding is... Undone by a passage like this. J. Vernon McGee once said that this is God's universe and God does things his way. The problem is that uh, you may have a better way, but you don't have a universe. You didn't bring anything to the table, he's saying. You didn't have uh, the credentials. You didn't have the pedigree. You You didn't bring the accomplishments that God does and so he is one to be listened to. We can hear ideas repeated so often that they feel like fact to us. If you get enough people to agree on a concept or an idea and they repeat their idea enough times, it almost becomes unquestioned. But in verse 15, God compares all of the consensus of the nations, all of the ideas of the nations all of the accomplishments of the nations. He compares them to a drop from a bucket. If you've ever used that phrase uh, to refer to something that is tiny and insignificant and really not worth bothering with, this is the verse that it came from. It came from the Bible into the English language because we look for ways to describe things that are small, insignificant, in comparison to something that is so much greater that we struggle for words for. And this is the infinite wisdom and knowledge of God in comparison to us. So how does that give you hope when life doesn't make sense? How does that help us to make sense and understand tragedy and difficulties and circumstances of our own lives? I think the first thing it helps us to understand is there's going to be a lot of things that we don't understand. If God is infinitely wiser than us and not just a slightly smarter or more experienced version of ourselves, then, of course, there are going to be things that we don't understand. Any of you who have young children, there are probably decisions that you have made that were in your child's best interest, that were... You've made some really dumb decisions as well, I know, but you've made some decisions that were kind of in their best interest. they were wise they were uh they were decisions of experience and maturity, and your child didn't understand them. they didn't understand them because you had more experience and wisdom than they did. If that could be true of you and you have never you and I have never been accused of being infinitely wise, right. If that could be true of us in relation to a, a young child, surely it has to work on a grander scale. If God is infinitely more wise than us, surely there are things that we are not going to understand. If you are a novice chess player, and there is, you, you are up against a, uh, a chess master, there are going to be moves in that game of chess, and if you're a real novice, it won't be a very long game, but there are, going to be, there are going to be moves in that game that look like the chess master has made a mistake. He's done some dumb, uh, made a dumb move. And it looks like that to you and I as the novice because we tend to look at the, the, the moves one by one. Whereas the chess master is thinking 10 to 15 moves in advance. He has a master plan, a master strategy because he has more... Wisdom and experience than us, and the the reminder of scripture here of god's infinite wisdom is intended to help us to recognize if God is infinitely wise, of course, there are some things I will never in this lifetime understand. It, it helps me in facing difficult circumstances because it reminds me I need to accept that God has a plan and I may not understand it, but he invites me to submit to it. He invites me to enter into it. It it encourages me to have humility with regard to the knowledge and understanding that I might have, that you might have. And it helps me to enter into acceptance even if I don't understand. So we've said that we need to doubt our doubts. And we started doubting our doubts by... Allowing God to speak into our lives with a question, what if he's more infinitely wise than we could possibly imagine? But next we're confronted with a question, what if God is infinitely more powerful than we could imagine? We often try to interpret God on our terms. We, we use analogies. We, we think back to decisions that we've made and how we've made those decisions. And we kind of imagine God must be a little stronger. He must be a little more powerful. But he's kind of like us. We, we kind of envision him as a, a, really, a really powerful and influential person. Uh, a power broker just a little bit, a little bit more than we've, we've experienced. But what if he isn't that? What if he is infinitely more powerful than we could imagine? How would that change things? Verse 18 asks, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? He's just been explaining how great God is and saying, then he says, what are you going to use to compare him with? And he answers his own question in verse 19 with an exclamation mark of shock and amazement where he says, an idol? To take something that is small and uh, and and lifeless, and something that doesn't speak, that doesn't move, that isn't involved, that has no power, and to use that to describe God, is something that the Bible says He always hates. Whenever idols come up in Scripture, you hear God's strongest appeals. His his strongest emotions. He hates them because they give us a distorted vision of what he's like. I'm not sure if you have ever uh, seen idols like this. This was a part of our daily life uh, all around us in, in Japan. But the thing with idols is they don't move, they don't speak, they have no power, they are small, they are crafted and designed uh, according to human specifications, to serve human needs, and God says i 'm not anything like that. I am so unlike that that any time that you you take up your carving uh, instruments to make something that you think is like me, you have missed understanding what i 'm really like. God is infinite in power and majesty. He speaks and the mountains shake. He can't be tamed and he will not be managed. Verse 22 declares, It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. It's impossible for us to even grasp the enormity of his power. Verse 23 says that he brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. That's important because the Israelites at this time as they were in exile in Babylon, as they were ruled by foreign oppressors, they assumed that their life was in their hands. They thought that their lives were at the mercy of powerful people that controlled their fate and set their lives in motion. And God said, all I need to do is to blow with my breath, and they are nothing. It is a picture of God's strength, of God's might, uh, of how infinitely larger and stronger and more powerful his his presence is in our lives than we would otherwise give him credit for. Jeremiah 37.27 says, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? There is nothing too hard for God. Nothing limits him. Nothing constrains him. Nothing would stand in his way. Jesus said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Amen. God isn't just you on steroids. It isn't just a, he isn't just a slightly stronger version of you. He is infinite in power and that's important for us when we face circumstances that we don't understand when we find ourselves asking questions about God because if God is more powerful than anyone we could ever imagine it's going to mean that he acts differently than we would we we do incremental steps we have very limited resources With God, he can undo a decade's worth of missteps in a a heartbeat. He can do things at a scale and at a level that we find difficulty even wrapping our heads around. Again, that's going to mean that there are things in our lives that we don't understand. Because someone with that kind of power is not going to do things the way that we would do them. But someone with that kind of power is to be reckoned with. It means that if we are on his side, it doesn't just improve the odds, it reverses the odds. It shows that if we are on his side, then his purposes in our life cannot be thwarted. There are no obstacles to God. There's nothing that can stand in his way. With God it's never too late. With God your situation is never beyond hope. Nothing is impossible with Him. So we've been talking about how to doubt our doubts, and we've started by asking and listening to God's questions of us. We've said, what if God is infinitely more wise than we had imagined? What if God is infinitely more powerful than we could have we could have imagined? Finally, the Bible asks, what if God is infinitely more personal than we could imagine? When life doesn't make sense, you and I are tempted to ask the question, maybe God just doesn't care. Maybe God didn't see. Maybe God was not on the job. Maybe God is just kind of distant and off in the distance. And he just doesn't care enough to get close to the kinds of situations that I'm dealing with. But what if God is infinitely more personal than we can imagine? To convince us how personal he is, he calls us to look to the night sky. This, is something, this isn't the first time that God does this in Scripture. Often what God will do is have people look at the night sky in order to convince them how vast he is. Because Israel's neighbors in the ancient Near East would frequently worship the stars. They would see their lives as being dictated by the stars, determined by the stars. And God says, first of all, I'm the one that made them. I have power over them. They don't have power over you. But while we might be moved by the power of God who created the stars, the verse goes on to tell us that he brings them out by number, calling them all by name. I I love that phrase because it, for me, sounds like a kindergarten teacher on a field trip calling out her students, right? She's checking on them. Katie, Devon, Samantha, calling the names because she doesn't want to lose any of them calling each of the names because the kindergarten teacher feels a responsibility towards them. The kindergarten teacher at the washroom break, checking the numbers, checking the names. The kindergarten teacher as each one gets back on the bus. Want to be sure I don't lose any of them. We understand that with a kindergarten teacher But what kind of God names the stars? What kind of God assigns names and numbers to the constellations? It shows the level of God's concern. It shows how personal he is, how individual he is. It shows how much he cares. The verse goes on to say that because he is strong in power, not one is missing. In ancient Israel, as they would have gone out and looked at the the night sky, uh, scholars today estimate they would would have seen about 5,000 stars in the sky. But astronomers now estimate that there are some 400 billion stars just in the Milky Way alone. And there are another 125 billion galaxies in the universe. That gives us some 10 billion trillion stars, and the scripture declares... God has named every, every last one of them. He has a personal care that just goes beyond anything that we could possibly imagine. But why tell us all this? Why mention this about, uh, about the stars? And how does it give us hope in our lives when our circumstances just don't make any sense? Well, first of all, it's not mainly to teach us about astronomy, right? It's never about the stars. The point is that if God names the numbers of stars, how much more intimately does he know us? How much more intimately does he care for the circumstances in your life, the details of your life, the details of what you are going through, even in those times where you say, I don't feel like anybody gets me that anybody understands me. I don't feel like God cares. It also means, I believe, that he wants a personal relationship with us. If God cares to name the 10 billion trillion stars, surely he cares that we know his, his name. It, it's fashionable today to say, well we all just worship the same God, but we use different names. And there's a lot of problems with that statement, but probably one of of the problems that this text brings to us this morning is it assumes that God is impersonal, distant, and uninterested. If I came up to you and I introduced myself and I said, my name is Paul, but you could call me Steve, Rob, George, or nondescript tall individual you would not you would probably not draw the conclusion oh he's really inclusive you would probably come to the conclusion he doesn't really seem to care what people think about him I'm not sure he's really interested what people think of him at all I'm not sure he's really interested in relationship I'm not sure he's all that personal But God is personal. He is interested. He has a name. And he loves for us to use it. At Christmas, we bring our questions to God. How could God enter this world? How could angels speak to people? How could a virgin give birth to a baby? How could wise men follow a star? We hear those questions and we think, I can't figure this stuff out. I, I'm not sh-. We'll, we'll hear from scholars who, are say, who will say, well, according to our latest research, that's just not possible. We'll draw conclusions about the Christmas story in the same way that we are tempted to draw conclusions about our own lives. And the conclusion is, well, if God is just a slightly smarter slightly stronger version of us, then that just doesn't seem to add up. But when we hear God's questions, our questions melt away. If God is infinitely more wise, infinitely more powerful, infinitely more personal, then the hard questions of Christmas become easy. And the hard questions of our own lives give us something that we can rest in. We can hear the questions of God and recognize, yes, while we have doubts, we can doubt our doubts. While we have things in our lives that we don't understand, we can accept that we don't understand them. Because we know the one who does understand them. We know the one who has a plan and we can accept that his plan is good. In trusting his wisdom, we accept that he knows better than we do. In trusting his power, we believe there's nothing that's too hard for him. And in, and in trusting his personal care, we receive, trust, and believe in his great love for us. I don't understand some of the circumstances in my life. And I'll bet that you don't understand some of the circumstances in your life too. I don't know what God is doing in some of the circumstances of our world. But I do know that if he cared enough to enter our world as a baby, to come in weakness, in vulnerability, then I'm gonna trust that he cares, that he is one that I can put my trust in. I'm gonna stop assuming assuming that I know better. I'm going to put down my clipboard by which that I'm tempted to score God on how well he's doing and I'm going to trust that God knows what he's doing even when I don't. I'm going to trust that he has a plan and that his plan is good and I'm going to put his, my life in his hands and let him be God. That's what Joseph did at Christmas when he got... A glimpse of God's glory. That's what Mary did. She didn't have all of the answers. She didn't have it all figured out. In fact, there was many parts of the plan that didn't make sense. But she caught a glimpse of the glory of a God that was infinitely greater than she'd imagined. And she could trust him. She could rest in him. That's what I believe the shepherds did when they heard the announcement of the angels. It didn't all make sense. They couldn't figure it all out. But they caught a glimpse of the glory of God and they said, I can trust him. I will follow him. And that's what I believe the wise men did. It was just a star. It was just some prophecies that they'd heard. Surely there were many things they didn't understand. Surely there were many things that still didn't make sense but they caught a glimpse of the glory of God and said, I can trust him. I can put my life in his hands knowing that he knows best. Amen. Jesus came to make that possible for you and I. He drew near that we might drew, draw near to him. Let's look to him now in prayer. Heavenly Father, you know the circumstances in our lives that we struggle with. Would you help us to put them in your hands? Help us to trust in your infinite wisdom and believe that you know what you're doing. As we look at our circumstances, maybe for some of us as we look at Christmas and what we have to look forward to over this next week or so, Help us to trust in your might and your power. Help us to remember that nothing is too hard for you. We praise you as the God who names the stars. Thank you that you know our name as well. Thank you that you cared enough to send your son into this world. And we thank you for the miracle of Christmas. In Jesus' name, amen.